We've got to get some booze. It's the only solution to this intense cold. Something's got to be done. We can't go on like this. I'm a trained actor reduced to the stakes of a bum. When film directors venture into the realm of the autobiographical, they invariably go back to childhood. John Borman's Hope and Glory, Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows, or Spike Lee's Crooklyn. Others favour adolescence or college. Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused, or Barry Levinson's Diner. Yet, few dare to look back at full adulthood. Federico Fellini's Evita Lone, Woody Allen's Annie Hall, or Jim Sheridan's In America. That last grouping is perhaps the most difficult because the lens through which they are assessing the past is too short to glean a clear perspective. And a clear perspective is what is needed for any memory movie to avoid being bogged down by the treacle of nostalgia. Even though Bruce Robinson's Withland and I was made in 1987 and is set at the tail end of the 1960s, it does not pine for that mostly celebrated decade. Here is how Robinson opens his screenplay. A few shafts of sunlight sneak through the curtains and illuminate a living room. Victorian heirlooms, antique furniture and a pair of ice skates. Empty bottles everywhere. Marwood is in a chair smoking a cigarette and sweating anxiety. Looks at his thumbs. He gets up gingerly and walks into a kitchen full of bottles, washing up and dead flowers in black water. Paul McGann plays Robinson's alter ego, Marwood. And as he shuffles around the Camden flat, we see it is filled not with nostalgia, but cluttered with junk. Nostalgia works when you can immediately locate an element within your memory. Fashion, cars, music. But if it takes you a while to position it, the effect is estrangement. On the film's soundtrack, music strikes up. And as the melody develops, we hear something faintly familiar. Yet, it takes a while to identify it as... Of course, had it been this version, we would have recognised it instantly. Had the version by Prokil Harum been used, its filled out volume and filled up energy would only have given the story a false hope. Instead, Robinson has chosen a rendition by King Curtis. Now, pedants will say, ah, but this film takes place in 1969, and Curtis did not record this version until 1971. To which I say, that's the way memory works. It mixes and conflates events until what actually happened becomes so disarranged, it more resembles a child's collage than it does the facts. Curtis's saxophone sounds like a heart hankering for something else, to be somewhere else. Within minutes of having heard the music, Marwood is prevailing upon his friend, Withnell, played by Richard E. Grant, that they need to get out of London. You know what we should do. I say, you know what we should do. How can I possibly know what we should do? What should we do? Get out of it for a while. Get into the countryside, rejuvenate. Rejuvenate? 
I'm in a park and I'm practically dead. What good's the countryside? Despite its copious lakes, sylvan downs and meandering dales, you don't get all that many British films vacating to the countryside. Of course, you have Jane Austen, Thomas Hardy and E.M. Forster adaptations that bring blue skies, green fields and girls with flaxen hair. But for the most part, British cinema prefers the griminess of the kitchen sink. Put on the gloves. Don't attempt anything without the gloves. Uh, what is it? What have you found? Matt. Matter? Where's it coming from? Don't, don't look. I'm dealing with it. Nothing could be in here too long. I feel unusual. I think we should go outside. The film began as a novel, a memoir inspired by the times Robinson shared in the late 1960s with fellow bon vivant Vivian McCarroll. While Robinson was then an actor who had several credits under his belt, McCarroll had little more than an invective that he would unleash on Robinson, declaiming that his was the greater talent. It's ridiculous. I've been to drama school. I'm good looking. I tell you, I have a fuck's out more talent than half the rubbish that gets on television. Why can't I get on television? Over time, Robinson agreed and decided instead to write. He penned several screenplays, none of which were actually produced. But his obvious talent was recognised, and David Putnam, fresh from having produced the Oscar-winning best picture Chariots of Fire, hired Robinson to write The Killing Fields. Robinson won a BAFTA and secured an Oscar nomination for his work, and that gave him the traction to direct this, his first film. Here is Bruce Robinson. It's only once in your life that you get to make your first film, you know. So if it's your first film, and it's the only time you'll ever do it in your life, you may as well do it like you want to do it, not like somebody else wants to do it. That makes it all sound like plain sailing. But as soon as Robinson began filming, he was almost fired. The producers found the first day's rushes visually dark and the performances decidedly unfunny. This despite the fact that what they were watching involved Marwood groping around the remote country cottage, looking for some candles and gas lamps because there was no electricity. Understandably, Withnell is less than happy with the situation and spends the time complaining. One of the problems with Handmade, Handmade had made a lot of the kind of comedies that I, I actually can't stand, and don't say that in a particularly pejorative way, but I hate jokes, you know. Humour to me has to be based on the reality, no matter how absurd and all the rest of it. And, and Handmade were, were very much into sort of joke type of, of movies. At, at its very best, Life of Brian, fantastic, you know, but it isn't my, my kind of thing. And so, so I had all sorts of difficulties with Dennis on the first day, literally hardly started shooting the bloody thing and he's up there crowing about what's wrong with it, you know. Of course, from this remove of 2015, with the film having long since secured its status as a British classic, it is very easy to scoff at the producer's concern. Even when it was released, neither audiences nor critics were sufficiently warm to the film, and it wasn't until it was released on video that any concerted praise was lauded upon it. And who were the wise bunch to first do so? College students, who invented a drinking game where they matched glasses, pints and shots for every gulp knocked back by their increasingly inebriated leads. All of which I say to reiterate William Goldman's oft-repeated phrase 
nobody knows anything. Balls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here and we want them now. It would be facile to criticise Robinson's cinematic style. The technical aspects serve the story but little more. There are no real flourishes at which to marvel or say, here's a master of the craft. But that is to completely overlook the essence of filmmaking. And that is to tell a story about people. Robinson's script serves as the basis for terrific performances from everyone in the cast. While Paul McGann was never second-guessed as Marwood, Bill Nye was originally the strong contender for Withnell. He was such good friends with Robinson that they were drinking buddies, but Robinson ultimately decided that there could be room for only one heavy drinker on set, himself. So Richard E. Grant got the break that not only put him on every casting director's list, but also provided him with his career-defining role. Here is Richard E. Grant. He's more self-deluding than, than, than anything, because he thinks that he's this great actor and he's not. Um, and as proved by the real character, he never worked, as far as I know, once he left drama school. As for Uncle Monty, Peter O'Toole was originally suggested. But Robinson knew that O'Toole's persona was too charismatic and larger than life and would have left audiences scratching their heads as to why Uncle Monty was so sexually repressed. But as embodied by Richard Griffith, Monty moved from svelte to oversized and suddenly it explained his quiet loneliness. Oh my boys, my boys, we're at the end of an age. We live in a land of weather forecasts and breakfasts that set in shat on by Tories, shoveled up by Labour. And here we are, we three, perhaps the last island of beauty in the world. All across the script, you get characters who yearn for the good gone days, curse the days that they are in, or retreat from them into a drug-filled stupor. Either way, they each refuse to face up to the present. And so the only one who can escape is Marwood. He did not know it, but by insisting he and Withnell head off to Penrith for a dead-end weekend which served only to pull them back to crumbling Camden Town, Marwood inadvertently created the very boomerang that would send him out into a different orbit. Leaving Withnell alone, reciting Shakespeare to a pack of disinterested wolves. And none of it, none of it, is the stuff of nostalgia.